Dennis Rodman, one of the most aggressive players in NBA history, while he dominated on defense, he became more popular for his controversial image. I didn't plan to dye my hair. I didn't plan to be a bad boy. The Hall of Famer remembers his journey to the pros from an unlikely stop in an Oklahoma farm town. I mean, I ain't coming to be a star or anything. I just came here to play ball. To the moment that nearly ended his life. And what were the circumstances that sort of led up to that? I was basically by myself. Always a magnet for media attention, the self-professed bad boy says he's still having fun in his 50s, but admits he's lucky to be alive. People thought I'd be dead, literally at 40 or 45. Because of where I was burned to count on both ends. We traveled to Fort Lauderdale in 2011 to sit down with Rodman and began with his troubled childhood and the unlikely family that helped turn his life around. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I wanted to mention a few players and just get the immediate thoughts that come to mind. The first one would be a guy you played with way back when, uh, Kobe Bryant. Oh, yeah, I played with Kobe Bryant. I played, and matter of fact, I played in 1989 with him. And when the lockout uh, ended in January, um, they asked me to come to play with him in, in January, and I played with him in the beginning of February before the All-Star game. And uh, he's, he's a good player. He's a great player, actually. He developed into a great player. I first played against him when he was like 19 years old when he first came in the league. And, um, you know, but, you know, he's just like Michael Jordan, but uh, a couple of years earlier. What about another guy you played with, Shaquille O'Neal? Oh, no, Shaquille's a good, he's a good guy. I mean, you know, Shaquille became this, um, this, um, you call it a poster boy for big guys. You know, he's like the big and tall poster boy. And, uh, you know, he's a big kid and a big man's body. And uh, he's a good guy, you know. I mean, me and him we had our you know, disputes uh, along the years, but uh, we get along pretty good. What about LeBron James? You know, um, LeBron's LeBron. You know, LeBron's like the Tiger Woods of basketball, pretty much. And um, you can tell him what to do. I mean, he's, you know, like they call him, he's, he's the kid of the block. I want to take you back to your NBA career. What did you most enjoy about your two championships with the Detroit Pistons? Just being there. Just being there? Just being there, just being able to just be a part of it. You know, just uh, the fact that, you know, Jack McCluskey gave me an opportunity to just even, you know, took a chance on a young kid. When I was young, I was 25 years old. A young kid that came in, worked his ass off, and, um, and Chuck Day just gave me the break to say, you know, I'm gonna keep giving you this chance because you work your ass off, you work hard in practice, you work hard in the game, and you know, and he he saw, he saw something in me, and I, I give those guys praise. How would you describe the respect that you have for Coach Chuck Daly? I mean, he's like he's like a father figure because I didn't really have anybody in Detroit. Uh, I didn't really know anybody, and uh, I was 25 years old coming from the ghetto, and um, it's very difficult to at least blast in, in, in the spotlight at such a, at such a middle age as I was. Because a lot of kids today are coming in at 19, 20. Uh, I came in at 25 and, uh, and blossomed at literally <laughs> at 27, 28. And a lot of guys have always been successful at that age. But uh, I was just really still getting my ears wet at the, po at the moment. Because I, I didn't, I didn't have been anywhere, you know, besides, you know, Texas and Missouri, and that was it, you know, stuff like that. But 
I've never been around a country like that, and you know, I got used to it very quick. And um, and the guys around me, Chuck Daly, really, uh, really uh, put some intuitive things in my head. How did he help you? He just kept me balanced. He kept me balanced. He kept me level-headed. He kept me understanding that the fact that you know this is a business, this is a game. Uh, enjoy yourself. Don't put yourself in position to uh, um, get influenced by certain people. And uh, he just kept telling me, Dennis, come to my house. I want you to come over here because, you know, I didn't have no family. I just listened to him all the time, him and his wife and Terry, his daughter. Uh, we sit there at the house, you know, before you go in his house, he had white carpet. Because, you know, you walk in his house, take your shoes off like you're in Japan. And <laughs> so it's like, you don't walk in his house, take the shoes off, okay, great. And uh, he had this old badass little chihuahua just trying to bite people. But uh, you know, I just, that's what I like about it, because everything about him was very cool, man. And just, we kept everything very level-headed. He ended up resigning as head coach of the Pistons. To what extent, and you've spoken about this before, but do you feel he was betrayed by the organization? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was very difficult but when you, in 1998 and 99, when we first won our first championship, we actually came together uh, in training camp, and he he actually came to us and said, you know, he put us down. He said, you know, I don't know if I should I stay or should I go. And they want me to, they want to kick me out. And we all like took a vote, said, no, we want you to stay for the 89-90 season. And it's very difficult because that's when things start to really unfold for the Detroit Pistons. And he stayed, and um, it, was very, it was very cool, but it was very trying at the time. Because uh, that championship was more like, it was uh, more like, okay, great, we need to stay on top. Uh, compared to the 80, um, 86, 87, we lost in Boston and India. East Coming Finals, then we, uh, in 87, 88, we lost to the Lakers. We should have won that. Yeah, a fall away, basically, from winning the championship, right? Yep, pretty much, pretty much. And uh, 88, 89 is when we won it. That's when they started calling us the bad boys. And uh, but 80, 89, 90, it was when things started to really rocky. After he, he resigned and the team started be, being broken up, uh, you said in your book that you essentially spent an entire month in your house. Yeah. What were you going through emotionally then? Oh, no, just trying to figure out what, what direction I was going. It wasn't a death wish for me. And of course, like, you know, I'm a die because, you know, things are going to hell, no. It was more like, you know, just, just trying to get things together, pretty much. You know, what's the direction I was going? Uh, do I want to trade it? Or am I going to uh, persevere in the city or go somewhere else? Your then teammate, uh, while you were with the Bulls, Scotty Pippen, was quoted as saying, I have not had a conversation with Dennis. I've never had a conversation with Dennis in my life, so I don't think it's anything new. Why not speak to your teammates then? Well, I didn't think it was important. I thought it was important for me to go there and win. You know, it, it wasn't, I don't have to have a job to speak to people. My job is to correlate and understand how people work and do one thing and make people believe that the fact that you belong there. You know, talking to people will come. Relate to people will come. If they see you performing and doing your job and being with a group, that's all I want. That's all I want. I don't <clears throat> Man, Scott, we're cool. Man, Scott, we're cool today. You know, we're a little older, we're a little wiser, 
But we're cool today. I mean, me and Scotty never had a conversation. We never had a Me and Scotty and Michael never had a conversation in three years in Chicago. Only time we had a conversation is on the court. But that was it. And nobody believes that. <laughs> I said, well, on the previous uh, conversation with probably Judd Bushler, Randy Brown, Steve Kerr, you know, Luke Longley, other players. With me, Mike and Scotty, we never had conversation at all off the court. How much, if at all, do you think that helped you kind of keeping to yourself? I think it helped me a lot, but I think it kept me focused. It kept me focused. You know, I didn't have a dad. I really didn't have a real dad. Uh, I didn't have a mother. Uh, I think my mother, uh, me and her, we really don't have this, this correlation of, of a son and mother. Um, but, uh, you know, one day it, it'll come, but it's, it, I just, I've been, I've been by myself for so long. I mean, living by myself, I think I choose that. How often would you watch tape? I watch tape all the time. Why? Just because I wanted to, you know, because I wasn't the biggest guy on the floor. Because I used to play the three, the four, the five, and I had to guard the biggest guy. And I wanted to figure out what's the weak points, uh, what, what leverage can I have, how can I rebound, how can I put myself in position to do this, this, this. So I just watched players. You had a reasonably interesting weight workout schedule, too, in terms of what you did before and after the games. Explain what was involved in that. I was involved. No, I wasn't too much involved. I think, you know, I think I can't ask that more than the players can. I mean, every day, literally, every, um, every shoot around, every practice, I think anyone that has been around me as far as being on the bus, I, I was the only guy to ever say, can you stop me at a gym? And I get off the bus and walk to the gym every day. I mean, every game, before a game, I go to a gym. After practice, go to a gym. After the game, be in a gym. When you were playing, to what extent would you know during a game where the ball was going to go before it would ever go there? It took me a while to understand that one because I, I, I just watched tape, watched tape, watched tape. And I watched my players on my team when they're shooting certain spots. I know Steve Kerr going to shoot this. I know Mike going to shoot that. And I just put myself in position when I know if he's gonna come this way, I gotta go this way and put myself in position because I know it's gonna come here. But you know, you got Tony Kukos, he gonna shoot over here because he's a left hand, he gonna shoot on this side. He can't shoot on that side. He gonna shoot on this side. So I say, I gotta put myself over there because I know it's gonna pop up or whatever. It's gonna be long. So, I mean, you just gotta understand with players. And I, I developed that whole skill about the players. How long did it take you to learn that? A few years, probably about eight, nine years. What sort of energy would you say you brought to a game? Well, I think I, I didn't bring energy. I thought I brought just the perception of uh, working hard. I think, you know, that people knew me and they got used to me being Dennis Rodman, the guys is going to be there every game. Well, but I mean, there was more to it than that. It was, there was this excitement, wasn't there? Well, people, people got to the point where they said, okay, great, what is it going to do now? What is he gonna do now? He gonna do something, he gonna do this, 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 this. What's his hair color, this, 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 this. Uh, he gonna throw the jersey to me today, he gonna do this. I'm like, I brought the perception, but it wasn't about me. It was always after the game. It wasn't before, or, you know, doing all the, you know, the stuff like that. And of course, you know, before the game, I never do anything. I never shoot. All I do is stretch out, yada, 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 go play. Cause I, I didn't have to shoot the damn ball. <laughs> all I do is rebound, play defense. And you know, also, it was, it was perception what I was going to do after the game or during the game. I want to take you back to a moment that you start your book.
speaking in great detail about April of 1993. You are in sitting lot. in the parking lot uh -huh, at the palace yeah. of, at Auburn Hills, uh, early morning hours, a loaded rifle in your lap contemplating suicide. No, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. And I try to correct that whole statement and that whole uh, <clears throat> part of that chapter of the book. But in your book, you write about it in a way. In fact, you even say you were, th those thoughts were going through your mind. Uh, you know, those thoughts were going through my head. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, was a, I just wanted to kill that individual. Not, not, not Dennis Rahman. I just wanted to kill the individual because I was too much of a follower. And what were the circumstances that sort of led up to that? I know, so I, th I think the circumstance, the fact that everyone's dispersing from the Detroit, I think that the organization started to get rid of certain key people of the team. And it, it was just like, you know, there was no, there was no more uh, cohesiveness as far as a family uh, uh, thing. So I was basically by myself, I thought. And I didn't have no family there in Detroit. Yet, even though I had the Genopolis, I had the Duns, um, Nancy Dunn, Randy Dunn, their family. It was, I really didn't have anybody, pretty much. And you wrote in your book to that point, uh, from the outside, I had everything I could want. From the inside, I, I had nothing but an empty soul and a gun in my lap. Well, that's pretty much true. I mean, you know, outside, you had everything you want. I mean, just like what athletes, if you look at athletes today, you look at all the guys that want to be this, this holy than thou, um, they're actually, you know, they're actually and lonely because they're their own entertainment. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm entertaining myself every damn day, uh, but they got to entertain every day. You also wrote in your book, and you briefly alluded to this, I discovered I was ready to check out of this life if it meant I could keep from becoming the man I was becoming. Who were you becoming? Well, it, it was just, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I something, came on when I went to San Antonio something really revolved and evolved with me. I can tell you how, when it just happened. I didn't just plan what I was doing. I didn't plan to dye my hair. I didn't plan to be a bad boy. I didn't plan to have tattoos. I didn't plan none of this. You know, I got bored of the game, yes. How conscious were you of a need to sort of create, project an image for yourself? I never did that. I never wanted to create this. I never wanted to create this image. It just happened. I mean, you know, you can always say you can feed the monster, but it's like, I never wanted to do this. I didn't want to do that. You know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably do it all over again. Yeah, I want to talk some just about your appearance and, uh, you know, sort of part of what people, uh, some of what people know you for. The first time you dyed your hair, it was a really big deal when uh, you came out, took your hat off when you were with the Spurs. Tell me about how that did come about. No, I would say, you know, it just came out the blue. We was, uh, we was in Vegas one time and we came back to San Antonio. And, uh, and I said, I'm bored, let's go, to, let's go somewhere. She wanted to go to a mall. And we went to the mall, and next thing you know, this guy asked me, come here. There was a guy from a salon. 
And I said, you know, he said, what do you want to do? He said, you want to do something with your hair? I said, well, do, do what you want. I sat there for like two hours, and the next thing you know, it was a mohawk blonde. That's where it all got started. How many tattoos do you have? A lot. How about uh, how many piercings? I used to have a lot. Did, did you really get your scrotum pierced? Mm-hmm. What was the thinking behind that? Nothing. You know, what the hell are you talking about? You want to go there, brother? Come on, Mr. Conservative guy. This guy's nuts. Hey, you're <laughs> this guy's nuts, right? He wants to know all this crap. Okay, great, I'll tell you. You want to know, I'll tell you. Painful experience? Oh, no, dude, no, 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 dude, you know what I'm saying, you know, once you have so much pain in your life, I mean, you, you put pain in your body, and I believe that with people, when you put, you, you know, when you have so much, really so much pain in your life, and, you know, I went to a, 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 a pain-driven year, and the more pain I got, the more driven I got. What do you recall from the time you told people you were going to be getting married, but you actually showed up, what it really was, uh, part of the book promotion in New York City? Uh, in the wedding dress. Not that I was flying from back from London doing a, doing a movie, and it's like eight of us, and I had the number one uh, makeup artist in the world. He died of AIDS, bless his soul. And uh, we was coming back doing a book promotion. He said, what do you want to do then? I said, what are you going to do for your promotion? I said, oh, great. Um, I don't know, how about a wedding dress, something cool, this I would marry myself. It just came out like that. It wasn't designed or nothing. He said, oh, that's great, that'd be awesome. Next thing you know, they got on the phone, in the plane, they got on the phone, start calling all these designers, this, 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 making this dress for me. And next thing you know, we got to the, the hotel, they had all these designers up there measuring me, this, 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 doing all this crap on me, and this, and making, doing makeup and stuff like that. So, <clears throat> so I, you know, start, they start playing, I start playing, okay, great, give me eight girls in tuxedos, this, 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 give me a horse and carriage, or give me all this stuff like that. But little did I know, this, this is gonna blow up. I didn't even notice. Next thing you know, I get in the horse carriage. It was actually raining. It was raining. If you see the videos or whatever, it was raining. Not hard, it was just raining and stuff like that. Coming down Fifth Avenue, they shut down Fifth Avenue. There was so many people down there. So many people. I, I walked two blocks to the bookstore and had the girls beside me. I walked right in the middle of them and just saw people everywhere. I'm like, wait a minute, what's up? You know. 1998, before Game 4 of the NBA Finals, you're with the Chicago Bulls. You got a decent amount of flack for uh, jetting off to wrestle with Hulk Hogan. What was the thinking behind that? I don't know, just went. What, what do you mean? Phil Jackson gave me, gave me the, um, the, uh, the range to do anything I wanted. Michael Jordan said, um, you know what, I don't care what he does off the court. As long as he come here and do his damn job, he can do anything he wants. And I'm the first player probably ever have done that. In 1996, I was doing that. 1995, I was doing it. To 2001, I was going between games, going to wrestle, go doing this stuff like that. I was doing all these things. And you see people today are doing it in, in different ways. You know, they're they trying to do everything in a book. I was the first guy they asked, I was the first athlete they asked for the dance on the stars, and I said no. I said, I'm already famous, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Shit, I don't need to go on TV and go dance and be more famous. That made no sense. I'd be more famous by my damn self. 
How common was it for you uh, in between games during an off day during the NBA regular season to jet off to Vegas to party for a day? Dude, I just, I just go get a bus. I get a tour bus and just go. You know, I take the team, so I have the team to uh, Atlantic City. And next thing you know, we come back the next morning. We all drunk, having a good time. Boom. Next thing you know, the coach is sitting right there. We're going to practice. Dennis, you ain't got to practice. You guys got to practice. They're drunk as hell. <laughs> They're drunk as hell, smoking cigars, everything. Oh, no way. You know, so. Tell me about how you met the riches. Um, how I met the riches? It, it, was, it was by accident. By accident. You ended up becoming lifelong friends with Brian Rich. Oh, yeah, Brian Rich, he, he was, I think, 13 at the time you like, met I him. I think he was and, maybe, I think 11 or 12. Okay, and you were, I think, around 22. I was 22, 22. What was the dynamic of that relationship like? It was actually, from start to finish, great. And um, when, you, when you have a screaming white kid coming to a gym and you have a black guy from the ghetto has nothing, and when you go talk to this, this kid, this, this kid named Brian, and screaming and crying because he didn't want to be there. And I go over and talk to him and say, oh, what are you doing? What's going on? How well do you recall that first day Brian brought you home? Oh, that's easy. He brought me home. Um, he asked me to come home uh, with him, and it was on a Friday after the camp was over. And um, he said, you want to come to dinner? I said, yeah, great, cool. So his brought his dad. Dad was shocked when he saw a six-foot-eight black guy. He thought it was going to be a five-foot-four white kid. And, you know, and the kids take me around. You know, you sit right here beside me. This is this, this, like, we're like best buds. And we get there, and next thing you know, boom, we have a T-bone steak, but baked potato, corn or cob, I mean, iced tea. And, you know, it, it was so cool, the fact that this little kid, I mean, probably this tall, maybe. So they say, you know, so he asked his mom and dad at the table, said, hey, Mom, can he spend the night? And they literally dropped. I said, what? You know, you're in a white, you know, country town, and they just, you know, you've probably seen one black person probably in 30 years. But it was funny that the fact that they had to, they got off the table, went to the other room, and you could hear them just talking loud. So, oh, we can't do this. We can't do it. No way. No way. This is it. And you can see that his two brothers outside looking in the window. They actually looking in the window at him. So they came back and said, okay, Dennis, you can stay one night. And next thing you know, this white kid jumps up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. The, the mom, Pat, says you really had a profound impact on Brian because I think it was a year prior, he's a, a young kid, had a hunting accident where he ended up shooting and killing his... He, he, shot, he shot his best friend. I didn't, I didn't, actually, I didn't even know that till a while, maybe a couple of years after. They never told me that because they didn't want to bring it up to him. But they told me the story that he was out to a hunting accident and he's loading his gun, a, a shotgun. Next thing you know, his, uh, he, cocked, he, uh, he loaded and cocked it like this, and the gun went off and his best friend's right in front of him shot a hole in his stomach and killed him. And that's, that's, that's how everything evolved because he was, he was staying with him in bed for four months, five months. He wouldn't go to sleep because he had nightmares every night. The mom, Pat, also said uh, 
you, worm, which, you know, is your She always nickname. called me worm. She never called me Dennis. So worm, you know, the country accent. <laughs> Pat said worm brought Brian out of the deep depression he was in. But at the same time, I think Brian helped save worm. How do you say he impacted you? Oh, he, he kept me, he kept me actually interested in life. Because, you know, I really didn't have, I really didn't have anything, you know, basically have anything as far as like a, a, a relationship basis wise. I didn't have a relationship with my mother, I have a relationship with my sisters. I really didn't have a relationship in any community I was in. And then once I got there, my interest came back as far as being with, around uh, individuals. And he was, we just, we had fun every day. We just had fun. Me and him, I mean, he was probably 10 years younger than me, but we just had fun, though. I mean, I didn't look at him as a little white kid. I looked at him, wow. <laughs> you know, we, we just, we did the same thing all the time. And we got, we got so used to each other. He followed me around every day, 24 hours a day. How would you describe what your life was like growing up? Just like any typical black ghetto little person. Fun, I had fun, though. I had fun. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I had fun, though, with the little things that we had. But it was, it was all right. It was all right. My mother did the best job she could. At times during your NBA career, you would drive through the toughest parts of town in the city, your cities you would be in. Why do so? Just remind me. What? Just remind me. What do you mean? Just remind me of what I came from and then remind me the fact that, you know what, just, just watch people. I, even today, I do it today. I mean, I can go down the street up here, do down the corner up here on Oakland Boulevard. I see all the people. I, I actually stop. We'll stop and give these guys money, man. You know, I've been there. I ain't been. I mean, you, you can't. You can't say just because I'm driving a a, a Maserati or a, a Rolls Royce or a Bentley or a Porsche or something like that that you can't stop and, and get and, and at least get someone some some love, you know, and uh, sit there and talk to them and stuff like that. You ain't got to tell me what you've been through. I know what you've been through. I know what you're going through. Yeah, see, just sit there and have a conversation with them. That's the most important thing right there, bro. And a, lot of, and a lot of people, you know, they want to do it for commercial reason or do it for satisfaction as far as like for, to redeem themselves by people. I just do it because it's natural for me. It's natural. I dress like this every day. Every day, just like them, every day. You would occasionally bring somebody home with you that you would meet driving through uh, these tough neighborhoods. What was it. the reasoning for that? Just do it all the time. I used to do it all the time in Detroit. In Chicago, what would you do? All the just bring them home. I take them, you know, I, you know, I just sit, we sit there and talk. I take them to dinner, talk, and take them home. But I said, what? I take them like to the Gap or Old Navy or something like that. That's buy them all these clothes and say, here, here's five hundred bucks. Take care of yourself. After uh, graduation, you end up taking a job as a janitor at Dallas Fort Worth International Airport. At that time in your life. What did you think of your future plans? Yeah, I have one. There was no future. <clears throat> I was more like, okay, great. You're going to jail or you're going to be a drug dealer. That was, that was my future right there. There's no ifs and buts about it. And then the watches at the airport. How did that all unfold? Not as when those see monkey do monkey things. You see somebody do something, you do it. And guess what? When you when you have money, if you, you think that's it's very easy, you know. That's why I say the world's dumbest criminals. <laughs> that was my. <laughs> that was me. The world's dumbest criminal. I forgot they got cameras. <laughs>
Anything about that. But, you know, but I did some smart thing. I did do some smart thing. I, I stole the watches. That was dumb. And plus, you know, I thought I was like, cool. But And there were 50 watches, right? 50 to 55 watches, yes. But I did one thing that was actually cool that saved my ass. the fact that I didn't sell them. I just gave them away. That saved my Because if I would have sold them and made money from it, I'd probably been in jail two to five years. That's a major felony, especially in that airport. So I just gave them away. I didn't even sell them. They went to, and they came and arrested me. They went and got all the watches back. So at 19, as you said, you're like five foot nine. Then over the next two years, you end up sprouting to six foot eight. You said that at that point, after you'd really grown, basketball came to you almost easy. How so? I say everything in my life is, is basically it's accident. You know, I, I, I said in my book, I said this quote too, I said, guess what? I stole everything I saw in my community. I don't know why I keep saying it because, I, you know, I've seen a lot of guys that should have been very rich and famous, so successful, and go to jail, get killed and stuff like that. I've seen it a lot, dude. And I was a nobody, and I walked to the gym and see him every day. And next thing you know, I saw growing and growing, started getting better and better. The next thing you know, it's like, wow, I'm here. At uh, 22 years old, you end up deciding to accept a scholarship to southeastern Oklahoma. Why did you? Because it, it seemed for a while you, that really was something you were less than interested in. Well, not really. I, I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to go back to school. I, I had to do something. You know, living on the streets wasn't what the well, When did that kind of, you make that decision that you wanted to, you know, it was my first main priority to go to school, you know. My first thing is to stay in the house and not be homeless. That's the first thing. Um, <laughs> but when those guys came in the door, you know, that was an opportunity for me. I could have said, I could have easily said no. I could have easily said that. If I would have said no, I wouldn't be here. Very simple. If I would have said no, get the way, hell away. Because other people had called you too, right? The other coaches and you, well, just, not, you not, wouldn't not, answer the phone? I never answered the phone. They called me all the time. I said, no. What? I talked to them. They, they showed up. Instead of calling, they showed up. If I would have said no to those guys at the door, they would have never came back. So what Donna says on national television, I think Dennis Rodman is cool as and I want to meet him. When you see that, what are you thinking? Not a damn thing. Really? I thought it was a joke. She was chasing me in San Antonio. I, I, every day I go to practice, I said, Dennis, Madonna's keep calling for you. I said, who? Madonna I said, the singer? He said, whatever. I just kept blowing it off, kept blowing it off. The next thing you know, she actually showed up. I'm like, okay, what? What, what, I supposed to jump with Madonna because it's Madonna? No, Madonna was Madonna. You know, and I think Brian, my friend, could tell you that, you know, we sat in a pool, dude, literally in a pool, dude, in Miami down the street here in Miami. And we sat outside in the pool and looked in, in the ocean. I said, and we, I, I said, what the f am I doing here, bro? I go to practice. I wasn't even thinking about her. I'm like, whatever, well, great, cool with Madonna. I thought the music sucked. You know, all bubble gum and all that bullshit, like a version, woo, great, cool. All that crap, so I didn't really give a I mean, do you still party as much as oh, you? Absolutely, you kidding me, dude? Come on. I know at some point uh, over the years, your friends have had concerns about 
all of the parting. Oh, yeah. Where do you come down on all of that? Well, I said, I, I said, I said everything in my speech. I said, and one day I'm, I'm going to come to the point where I say, hey, you know, enough is enough. Oh, absolutely. I, I, that part is it's easy. That part is easy. I mean, you know, you, you, can, you, can always, you can always visualize yourself as, you know, when, when, you, get, when you get older. And people always say, always saying, you know, uh, you know I, I think I'm getting older because I'm thinking more. I'm thinking more how life works. And, you know, and I, I'm getting to that point. I said, wow, I'm thinking more, but at least in a good way. <laughs> when I was back in, like, 35, 36, hello. <laughs> you take me to risk card in the fourth season. Hell, we have a good time. So, you know, like, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> what I've been saying, though, even today, you know, like last night, it was awesome. You should have been there, man. You should have brought your little film crew here. It's been awesome, dude. No, but there, I mean, there was a, a point a couple of years ago where <laughs> you, get it done? you stepped away from the drinking. You were completely sober. Oh, for, I was completely uh, sober for two years, dude. Yeah, absolutely. What was that period like for you? Oh, nothing. I got less sex than most cigars. I mean, how did your body feel, though? My body was cool. Why start up again, then? I was bored. You were bored? Very simple. When do you think enough will be enough? I think as I get older, you know, I think I'm uh, regressing and saying to myself, oh, enough's got to be enough because you know, I got to be a father, I got to do something because I can't die alone. You know, at least I want to have somebody to love me. Somebody love me. I mean, that way I can't have everybody say, okay, great, he just only does this, 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 this. He don't care about us. I got I to gotta have some communication, some type of avenue with my kids or someone that, that, uh, that's in my life. Uh, what makes you happy today? What makes me happy? I, I, I think what makes me happy, I think the fact that the gratification that actually I'm still living. Um, I think that, you know, I believe in, um, actually, I believe in people now that I did be, uh, didn't before. Um, I believe in certain people that actually like my dumb um, I used to always think that it was very superficial that people look at you because of the money, the fame, and the glory, and the accolades that you've done. But now, you know, as I, like I said, as I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm actually looking at it in a different, in a wise way. And uh, so I think that that what makes me happy more than anything. It keeps me persevering and, 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 uh, and moving in, in, in a good direction. And uh, like I said, you know what? I burned both ends of the candles. I said on, on my speech. I burned both ends of the candles. Everyone knows that. And I'm still here. You know, you got the Jimmy Hendrix, you got the Jim Morrison, you got the uh, Janis Joplin, you got uh, the, uh, the girl just died, Amy Whitehouse or whatever her name. And uh, it's like all those people died at 27 years old. At 27 years old, brother, they're more famous dead than they were living. They're making more money now than living. I mean, look at, look at, look at the Elvises, look at the Michael Jackson, look at those guys. They're making billions, Marilyn Monroe, billions, being dead. I'm still living. I'm still living. People thought I'd be dead, living at 40 or 45 because of where I was burning the count on both ends. Like I said, I'm, I'm surprised I'm still here, but guess what though? Something is keeping me holding on for a good day for me, for my good day. Something's keeping me holding on. Why do you think you are still here? Well, I guess I'm persevering, I'm persevering. Somebody has a good hold on Dennis Robbins' life. Somebody has a great hold and a great grasp. 
and hoping that um, one day I will be in his grace of love. And um, that day I said, you know what, I apologize. Should have been better. The Bulls and those three championships that you won along with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, what do you think made those teams so dominant? I think the individuals. You know, you, you got you got the great player. I mean, you got the great Michael Jordan. I mean, you you just I mean, dude. I mean, people just don't get it. Michael Jordan left and came back. He sucked in baseball. He came back in basketball and hello and won three. No one's ever done stuff like that. That's unheard of. But it's not just individuals though, too, right? I mean, it's a team sport. It's, it's so you a, had it's to. A, it's, a whole, it's a whole team. Mesh I mean, you know. <clears throat> I'm friend of mine's right there. That, that runs my stuff right there. He met uh, uh, Steve Kerr and Judd Bushler, all the guys. If you compare our team to, let's say, um, the Lakers, we couldn't match up. We could match up the first four people. Now you got Michael, Scotty, Dennis, and Kukoc. After that, it's, you know, you talk about the medium of the mediums in the NBA. But if you go to teams like the New York, so people like that are really talented. I mean, really talented-wise, I mean, athletic-wise, we didn't match up, but these guys on my team in Chicago, it was amazing how these guys do. I mean, you, you have to sit there and listen to these guys in the locker room and stuff like that, dude. They knew their role. They knew how to play the game. And you got the Steve Kerr. I mean, if Michael Jordan's in a problem, in a, in a, in a, in a fix, Steve Kerr could be right there. And God darn it, he gonna hit that damn shot. I guarantee you, boy, he's gonna hit that shot, boy. Or uh, the Jeff Bushlers, or the Randy Brown, or the uh, Luke Longley, or the uh, Tony Kukos. Those guys, they will hit that shot. And that's what they call a team role players. And I think our team could be any team in the world at that time today. What do you think uh, your fondest memory was of playing with Jordan? No, we're friends. That's the memory. We're friends. I mean, we we're compadres on on the floor. You know, you really don't look at uh, you know we don't praise each other on the floor. We uh, we absolutely um, adore our abilities to to win. To win. What would you say your most satisfying win of your career was? Probably um, the first championship in Chicago. Why? Just because they thought I couldn't do it. Um, it wasn't like an individual thing. It's more like, okay, Gray, you know, they thought I was a bad boy when I left San Antonio and then I came to Chicago and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, he's out there really, you know, he's going to destroy this team, really. I forgot we won 72 games. We won, we lost one game in the playoffs, the whole, the whole playoffs, and we won a championship. That's my satisfying win of the last game. You would listen to Pearl Jam regularly uh, before a game. Why Pearl Jam? It's just the, 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 the vibe and the music and, and the music and the way he speaks. And, and, and since Eddie Verde is one of my very, very good friends, very, I mean, very good friends, why I'm going to see him for the 20, 20th anniversary. We got to know each other so much, so well, sorry, that it just, you know, and just, just listen to him. It's more like you know. It's more like having a having a having a, a Dr. Feelgood brother all the time. But you know, he's there all the time when you just can listen to him on a CD or on the radio or something like that. And you know what he's talking about. And it's it's, it's hard hard to really explain that one. But it's, it's 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 very good to feel someone that that actually likes. You know. 
Be, because you knew him? That's, not, not that's part knew, of why you... Not, not because I knew him, just because I just loved his music. I loved the band's music because um, they speak from the heart. They sing from the heart. It wasn't about the money. Um, you know, when they, when they went, when they get, when it gets, uh, and, and my ex-girlfriend used to, uh, was married to at her own ticket master. And when and they came out and said, you know, we're going to re uh, rebel against Ticketmaster. They just stopped. They would sell their own tickets, and they still sold out. And uh, it was the first band to ever do that, not to sell tickets on Ticketmaster or anything like that. And that right there gave me a lot of respect for them, a lot of respect because it's like, you know, it, it's not about it. It taught me one thing. It's not about the money. It's about pleasing people that, ple that, that, that gave you opportunity. How would that music make you feel emotionally before a game? Well, emotionally, it made me feel good. All it did was it, it gave me it gave me an extra boost when you when you're feeling droggy sometime, um, when you're feeling a little down. I mean, but it's it's more like okay, the motivation factor. Yes, because you know what, uh, you listen to music because he talks about his his, his mother. He talks about the tri trials and tribulations, about uh, his past history, his uh, relationship with his wife. Um, it, but he it, it, it just talks about what he what he sees. And it's very difficult to talk about Eddie Vedder because we we'll sit down like we'll go to I go to Chicago tonight, and I guarantee we'll sit down in, in the lobby or the house and write a song. He'll go sing it, and that's what I respect about him. What did it mean to you to be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, I think if you if you caught my speech in the Hall of Fame, I really didn't say anything about me. It was about people around me, um, what I felt. And it was hard, it was very difficult. I couldn't even, I, do I didn't even get up that five seconds. I was going nuts. <laughs> Seriously, wow, dude. I, I, I tried to get Phil Jackson to talk for me. He would just, uh-uh, go ahead. I said, oh, God, you know. Uh, but, it, but you know what, for me, it, it, it was so refreshing, the fact that, you know, that's what people relate to. I can, I can, I can, sh I can show the real individual instead of the, 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 the guy that dressed up in women's clothes, the guy that dressed up in all these exotic clothes, guy could be the tough guy, the good guy could be the badass, could say he, he screws all the women in the world, but he has his side that, God darn it, a lot of guys love to do. And I did, because I always do it, you know, and I had my family right in front of me. I was talking directly to them. I wasn't talking to anybody else but them. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I wasn't, I hadn't been a father, I've been a dad or been a, a son. Sorry about that. Basically like that, and a lot of guys cannot do that. And I mean, really like that. And I think, you know, I wasn't trying to do that to, to get people to, to, to like me. That's, I, I'm always like that. Why do you think you became so emotional up there? <laughs> Easy. My, my life. My life. Simple as that, my life. You know, it ain't, it ain't the better roses. You know, you can always hide uh, behind money and fame. You know, it's high behind that, but you don't know behind the closed doors what's really going on. And so basically, I just let all the doors open, and there you go. That is right there. I want to take you back a couple months to an event that precedes the Hall of Fame, and it was, you know, another moment in which you were honored when your jersey was retired oh, by the Detroit Pistons. What did that mean to you? Oh, I didn't deserve that. I, I was happy. I didn't deserve that.
You said that in the press conference too. Why? Well, I, I'm not sure because I, I wasn't that long enough to get my number retired. I mean, it'd, it'd be different if it was more like, okay, great. I was a very major part of that organization. I was more of a, as 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 a piece of the puzzle. You know, I was there for seven years. Um, I actually didn't become uh, somewhat noticeable. Probably my third year, fourth year in the in in that organization. And after that, it, it pretty much went downhill. And I, 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 just, I think that I should never get my number retired, but it, it, was, it was great, you know, it just I made me feel good because the people actually still like me there. And, um, and I was telling people, I said, it'd be, it'd be shocking if Chicago retired my number. What do you think the likelihood is? It's a good chance. What's a good chance? What would that mean to you? I mean, the world, I mean, just because, not because I'm with uh, the greatest players in the world, Mike and Scotty. It's, it's just the fact that those people, they love you so much. I mean, when you, it's like a sport, it, it, it's just so fanatics about people that, that respect, you know, um, what they do. And I think Michael Jordan gave him so much love. Scotty, so much love. I mean, all the people that, especially anyone that played in Chicago, the baseball, the hockey, anybody, they just love them, man. And it's like, you can go back to today and they just would just hug and embrace you. And it's hard to get that feeling from anyone around the country, man. It's hard. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.